Hi everyone, welcome back to Hitchcock University where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Now when I last left you, Hitch had done what he'd called running for cover. He had uh, gone out and made a film that uh, that he knew would be very easy for him. And that was Dial In For Murder. Now, the movie we're going to get into today really starts what I think a lot of people would consider the golden era of Hitchcock, at least Golden's, or, or at least Hitch's golden era in Hollywood. Um, and one of the reasons that it's considered the golden, or one of the reasons that a lot of people would consider at, le at least a golden era in Hitch's career is because this is the first time that we start to see a lot of the consistent collaborators that he would carry with him as he went forward. For example, you had Robert Burks, who was introduced to us in the Strangers on Train episode. Uh, Hitch's director of photography, his camera operator, Leonard South, who when Burks died, South became Hitch's director of photography. Uh, you had the editor, Thomas, uh, George Tomasini, Edith Head, who was the costume designer and, and art director, John Michael Hayes, who was a key writer of Hitch's during this period. Oh, and Franz Waxman, who who did a lot of the music for Hitchcock. However, ironically, this is the last picture he did before Hitch started working with the composer that most people associate with Alfred Hitchcock. And then, of course, you have the presences of both Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly. Now, Jimmy Stewart was definitely a consistent actor for Hitch during this period, and Grace Kelly was as well before she went off and got married to the Prince of Monte Carlo or whatever. And, of course, the movie I'm talking about is Rear Window, which, if you don't know what it's about, let me kind of lay it out for you as best I can. It's a story of an action-seeking photographer who's out of commission due, due, due to an injury he suffered on the job. Having nothing to do as he is housebound, our hero watches from his apartment. Our hero watches his neighbors from his apartment window and discovers some inconsistencies with, with at least one of his fellow tenants and begins to suspect him of murder as we've <laughs> which i'm sure you've noticed is a common uh, phrase in the way i've dissected a lot of these hitch these hitch films um and then of course during all of this he's also trying to figure out what to do with this high class girlfriend who seems to be too perfect and yet the exact opposite of what he wants in a woman before we get too deep into this film I actually want to take a second and talk about talk about a technical aspect of this film that is very relevant to uh, to the history of cinema. You see, Rear Window is a Paramount film released in 1954, and the 50s were filled with a lot of experimentation by Hollywood because they were trying to figure out what they were going to do about television. A lot of studio heads were concerned that television would eat up all the market and then no one would actually leave their house to go see a movie because television was obviously so convenient, especially when television started pushing for color, although that was a little bit later. So the studios had to do something. They came up with a few gimmicks that that were able to keep, you know, people in their seats. You know, uh, it was the first time that they tried 3, 3D which is a trend that has that has cycled through every time Hollywood seems to feel threatened by anything. Um, and it has never stuck, which I think is really funny. But they also tried widescreen. They were trying to figure out how do we get a bigger image on the screen 
than you can get at home. Now, widescreen has become something entirely different. It's become uh, it's become something that that directors and cinematographers all around the world love to death. the The restrictions of the standard uh, one three three to one or the four four by three frame um, were just annoying. Um, and they're annoying even now when I watch the movies sometimes. Um, but that's what television was limited to. And so Hollywood figured out that, well, maybe if we open up the frame, make it bigger, make it wider, you know, actually closer to the human eye. I don't, I'm not actually sure that was one of their reasonings behind it, but maybe we can keep people coming to the theater. So Paramount developed a system where they would take the standard 4 by 3 film and crop it on the top and the bottom. Letterboxing very crude letterboxing so that instead of being 1.33 to 1 now it's 1.66 to 1 so we're we're getting closer to uh, uh, Vittorio Storaro's 2 to 1 ratio which um, for those of you who aren't familiar with that um, you actually are if you saw Stranger Things Stranger Things was shot 2 to 1 anyway I'm sorry I'm getting off topic um so yeah, one six six to one, but it's a very crude letterboxing. Um, this was before the introduction of anamorphic lenses. Essentially, what we do now is is we've crafted optics that can take a a, a relatively square image and make it widescreen. But before we'd figured out how to make lenses that could do that for us, it was just you would just crop off the top and the bottom and just fake widescreen. So that's what Rear Window is. It's a fake widescreen production. By the time Hitch was making Rear Window, Paramount had said that that is what every movie we do is going to be this 166 to 1. Anyway, um, the only reason I mention that is because it, it's going to become a little bit important on the next episode and, uh, and is incredibly relevant to film history, which I enjoy. Anyway, because this is my show. Um... Okay, let's get back to Rear Window. Time and time again, in pretty much every interview he ever had, Hitchcock referred to Rear Window as the purest cinema he ever made. Remember how he talked about rope and how he felt that all the camera movement and the not cutting was a gimmick because cinema is about cutting. It's about editing. It's about being able to put together two pieces of film, you know, two separate shots that are independent of each other and create an emotion or a thought but you know with the cut i'm going to back up and review this i feel like i've talked about this before i probably have um but i i just want to make sure we're all on the same page here editing as we know it today a lot of people credit to the soviet filmmakers of the late teens and early 20s um, men like uh, Vysevlad Pidovkin, uh, I'm going to forget his last name, but uh, Kuleshov, and of course Sergei Eisenstein, which if, if you've been to a film school that taught any kind of film theory, I'm sure you've heard that name, Sergei Eisenstein. He is considered the father of, of what is now known as montage theory. Now, montage theory has nothing to do with Rocky or The Karate Kid or any other movie you can think of that has a montage in it. Montage theory is, is a theory about the nature of editing. 
the nature of being able to take shot A juxtaposed with shot B and getting a third idea, emotional response, whatever it may be from the audience. The Kuleshov effect was an experiment done by Kuleshov where he took a shot of a man with a blank expression on his face and then would cut to something else. So we have shot A, the man with blank expression. Shot B is the variable, for those of you who remember the scientific method. Cut back to shot A, blank expression. Okay. So you have a formula A, B, A. It's, it's, it's fundamental editing, you know, shot, reverse shot, shot, or um, shot, point of view, reaction, or, you know, it, it, very simple editing structure. So you take shot A, insert shot B, which is the variable. This is the one that can change. Shot A is the control. Shot B is the variable. Shot B at first was uh, a bowl of soup. Cut back to shot A. We now know that that man is hungry, even though his expression has not changed at all. New experiment. Shot A to shot B. Now shot B is a crying baby. Shot A, this man is a concerned father. Now we change it again. Shot A to shot B. Shot B now is a child playing with a toy. Cut back to shot A. Now he's, instead of being a concerned father, he's a happy father, a, maybe a proud father, a, um, someone who takes pride in fatherhood. You know, however you want to interpret that. It's that power of editing without changing anything else. We can change a character just by changing just by changing the shots around them. This is the power of editing. It is the ability to inform the audience without any dialogue, simply by cutting together two shots that don't necessarily go together. Uh, Sergei Eisenstein, well, well, he gave another example. If you take shot A of a woman dressed in black crying, you know, that is one thing on its own. If you cut from that to a gravestone, now we have a story. It's the, or, or at least a situation, or, least, you know, maybe even an inferred story. So this is montage. It is, it is the ability to, to tell a story simply through piecing together shots. So... Now, and you also have to remember that Hitchcock came up in the filmmaking era when these people, when, when these Soviet filmmakers were really starting to understand this and were, and were creating films that were, that were almost entirely contingent on this necessity of editing and were writing essays that were going out all around the world to the filmmaking community about this is what makes filmmaking filmmaking. This is the power of cinema. You don't have this on the stage. You don't have this uh, in writing, at least not in the same way. This is what makes cinema unique is the ability to cut together shots. In fact, there was, a, there was an experiment done where the Soviet filmmakers took, took shots of a man and woman coming together going throughout the city of Moscow. But... If you knew the geography of Moscow, 
the way they were moving throughout the city wouldn't have made any sense. Um, it was as if on film they had completely redesigned Moscow. But because one is moving to the left and one is moving to the right, we get the sense of them coming together. And so then when they finally do, they embrace and they turn and they look in the same direction. And then we cut to a shot of, I want to say it was the Washington Monument or something like that, something in D.C. Okay, this is montage. They have completely reconstructed the geography of the world through the power of cutting and very carefully cutting and planning out how this was going to come together. Now, let me get back to Hitchcock. In his interview with Peter Bogdanovich, he says, and I quote, The juxtaposition of imagery relating to the mind of the individual. You have a man look, you show what he sees, you go back to the man. You can make him react in various ways. You see, you can make him look at one thing, look at another. Without his speaking, you can show his mind at work, comparing things. Any way you run... There's complete freedom. It's limitless, I would say, the power of cutting and the assembly of images. Reading that aloud, that doesn't make the most sense in the world. Um, but let me kind of break that down. What he's saying there is that the the ability to the ability to take shot A juxtaposed with shot B and then cut back to shot A is limitless. Say, for example, you inherited a movie from someone. You know, someone said, I, I I just can't finish this project here. You take it over. And you're in the editing room. You now have the ability to completely change the character of any, uh, uh, any character, any scene, simply by changing any reaction shots, changing what they're reacting to, you know, a- anything like that. And, and, and that's just, you know, in, in those shots, any point of view shot. In fact, Hitchcock gave this, gave this example in the, uh, on this film in a number of essays. What he said was, my entire movie is based on shots of Jimmy Stewart looking out the window, cutting to what he's seen, and then cutting back to his reaction. If we show him looking out the window, cut to um, a mother playing with her child cut back to his reaction. You know, he's a very fatherly, nice, gentle man. If we cut from shot of him looking out the window to to a woman uh, dancing in an evocative manner and then cut back to that same smile, well, now he's a dirty old man. And this this technique is difficult to notice sometimes because it feels so natural because well, this is what the script called for. Well, not necessarily. A filmmaker take, could take the script, shoot something else entirely, or, or actually shoot it the same way it's in the script, get, get into the editing room, find out it's not working, and then recut the picture just by changing that shot-reverse-shot action. This is what he's talking about when he says, the power of cutting in the assembly of images is limitless. There is virtually no limit to the number of variations you can create within a character now, he also said that this kind of filmmaking can, can show a character's thought process. And we see this all the time. And it is used countless times throughout this movie, not just by Jimmy Stewart looking out the window, but also by his detective friend who coming into Jimmy Stewart's apartment starts looking around and noticing some, shall we say, inconsistencies in the apartment. 
Now, Hitch starts giving us some practical advice here. Uh, this is also, I think this is also in the Bogdanovich interview, but it might also be in the, uh, I'm sorry, my notes are really poor here. Anyway, Hitch also gives us some practical advice. He says there are two primary uses of cutting or montage in film. Montage to create ideas and montage to create violence and emotions. Now, we've talked about montage to create ideas, at least some, uh, at least that's where I think you're starting to get the idea, I hope. Seriously, send me questions if this doesn't make sense. I would love to answer questions on this. I did a whole paper. Uh, my, my senior thesis was based around the theory of montage uh, in college. So I, I, I really love this idea, and I've done more reading than most people would care to. Um, now, before I, before I keep going, um, this idea to create violence and emotions, I want to back up a little bit and kind of set up the way this movie plays out. Most of this movie is played in long shot or wide mediums you know there's not a ton of like inserts or like extreme close-ups on anything because it's jimmy stewart looking out a window seeing what he sees from his perspective and then cutting back to him at the end of the film there's this there is a um there's a fight scene. I think I can say that without giving too much of it away. Or toward the end of the film, there's a fight scene. That's probably the better way to say it. Um, and Hitch talks about how he photographed that with feet, legs, arms, heads. is complete montage. It's all about the close-ups in that scene. Um, he said he also photographed it from a distance, you know, showing the complete action. But he says there was no comparison between the two. There never is. He gives the example barroom fights or whatever they do in westerns when they knock out the heavy or when one man knocks another across the table, which breaks. They always break a table in bars, he says. They're always shot at a distance, but it is much more effective when it's done in montage because, it, because you involve the audience much more. That's the secret to that type of montage in film. You can create some incredible emotions or emotional responses in the audience by not showing a complete action, but by showing, you know, key inserts, you know, getting up close and personal to everything, creating an intimacy within it, and then through the pacing of your cutting, as well as what you're showing, you get this kind of double whammy of effect, especially if it's something that you've saved for that particular moment, like in Rear Window, where everything's done mostly wide, you know, nothing too close to anything until all of a sudden we have this really emotional scene. There's one last thing that I want to talk about, and it's a, it, it's an idea that we've already touched on a little bit, but it's been a while, and I kind of want to show you um, a different spin, a different look on it. And we've talked about getting the most of what's already in the story. We talked about that, I believe, with the... Th no, not with the 39 Steps, with... With the man who knew too much, I believe. Talked about this. We talked about this idea of if you have something in your story, you need to utilize it. And we talked about mostly locations, right? I believe that's right. We talked about if you're going to go shoot a movie in the Swiss Alps, you need to use the Swiss Alps. There needs to be an avalanche. There needs to be skiing. There needs to be something that is inherent in that location that comes out in the story. Well, here we have a photographer who is spying on his neighbors. 
and there's scenes where he has to see what's going on across this courtyard and there's scenes when since he's apartment bound his his friends his girlfriend and others have to go out and do things and he has to figure out a way to signal them if if something's going to go wrong and there's there's all these situations that crop up that you have to put yourself in the mindset of the character well, what does he do for a living? You know, what are the tools that he would have at his disposal to accomplish these tasks to solve these problems? Well, he's he's a photographer. Jimmy Stewart's character is a photographer. Is a photographer. So, so for example, if he's going to spy on his neighbors, what's he going to use? He's going to use his telephoto lens. He's going to use a big old three hundred millimeter lens or whatever that he has, you know, on his camera body to go see what's going across this courtyard that's probably, oh, I don't know, 50 meters away. You know, or if he needs to signal someone, he needs something that's going to that's gonna be, you know, clearly obvious to them but isn't going to draw too much attention to him, hopefully, you know. Um, so what does he have? Well, he has flash bulbs. You know, he can send off a flash, you know, a really quick flash, you know, that will be attention-getting for that brief moment for anyone looking. You know, so if you're going to utilize, you know, Hitch, Hitch says it's really a matter of utilizing your material to the fullest dramatic extent. And I'm going to take a brief second to to kind of step away from just talking about what Hitch said. And I'm going to, I'm going to try not to read into the situation too much, but give you an example that I think makes a ton of sense that I observed from this film. That this this utilizing your material to the fullest dramatic extent extends to the opening shot where we introduce Jimmy Stewart. See, what happens is, is, is we show the neighborhood, then we come into Jimmy's apartment, we show a broken leg in a wheelchair, okay, um, with here lie the broken bones of L.B. Jeffries written across it, which is obviously his name. Come across that, we come up to a broken camera, and right behind it is a picture of race cars on a racetrack with a tire hurtling toward the lens. And then we come over to a framed negative of Grace Kelly and then a stack of magazines with the cover photo from that negative of Grace Kelly. And within that long tracking shot, well, not tracking shot, but this long shot that moves around his apartment, we've set him up without doing any cutting, without doing any montage. But because it's all one idea, we don't really need the montage. At least I don't think we need the montage because we're all because we're essentially communicating a continuation of one idea. Whereas montage is more of a idea, second idea, hopefully creates a third idea or, or an additional reaction to those ideas. But it's it's also it's a pseudo montage in that we take piece 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 piece, but we link them all together in a continuous shot. Anyway, um, but that's using what you have at your disposal or the the material to the fullest dramatic extent. We set up the character without saying one word because we get to see everything about him. We know oh he's in a wheelchair, he has a broken leg, and his name's L.B. Jeffries. Oh. He's a photographer, and he took that photo. That's why his camera's broken. Oh, and here's a frame negative, a very photographer thing to do, in my opinion, um, of a significant other. Oh, and there she is on a magazine. 
you know, we so so all this information is communicated all in one continuous shot with pseudo montage, but not really um, using using the material that a photographer would have at his disposal in his own apartment. Well, I think that pretty well covers rear window. Um, if you have any questions about that, I know this this montage thing is it's actually incredibly excuse me. I know this montage Sorry. thing. Shut up, Siri. Um, I know this montage thing is actually um, incredibly simple, but at the same time, um, there's a necessity to want to overcomplicate it. And hopefully, I didn't do that in my explanation. So, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. You can email me at hitchcockuniversity at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook, Hitchcock University. There's a page there. Uh, Twitter, Hitchcock. No, excuse me, Hitch underscore U, as in university. Um, and on top of that, if you enjoyed today's episode, feel free uh, to leave a comment, a rating, a review, wherever it is that you listen to the show, whether it's on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, what, whatever it is. Um, and uh, thank you for attending class today. Uh, we will hold class again in two weeks. Thank you for being here at Hitchcock University, where you learn filmmaking from the masters.